The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But it's also true that to the degree to which this is a function of the U.S.-China competition, not all regions and not all countries are equally important in that competition. And not all issues are equally important in that competition. So if the Chinese, for example, want to establish a naval base in Papua New Guinea or the South Pacific, that would be of pretty significant concern to the United States because of the way it could have the effect of pushing uh, the U.S. Navy back. If the Chinese want Huawei to build out the 5G network in Papua New Guinea or an island in the South Pacific, that doesn't seem to me to rise to the same level of concern. You know, overall, there's a, a sort of secondary point, I think, in what the National Security Advisor was trying to say, or perhaps what he should have said, which is that if we treat every country on its own terms as equally important in this grand China competition, we will fail. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for November 1st, 2022. In recent weeks, the Biden administration has released a trio of long-awaited strategy documents, including the National Security Strategy, the National Defense Strategy, and the Nuclear Posture Review. But how should we read these documents, and what do they actually tell us about how the Biden administration intends to approach the world? To answer these questions, I sat down with Richard Fontaine, Chief Executive Officer of the Center for a New American Security who is himself also a former National Security Council official and senior congressional advisor. We discussed the role these strategy documents play in U.S. foreign policy, what we can learn from them, and what they say about the state of the world and the United States' role in it. It's the Lawfare Podcast for November 1st, the Biden administration's grand strategy in three documents, with Richard Fontaine. So Richard, over the last few weeks, we've really gotten a set of kind of nesting dolls of pretty important strategic documents from the Biden administration. First, we got about two weeks ago, unveiled an event co-sponsored by by your organization, CNAS, of course, the National Security Strategy, the kind of capstone document that describes how the Biden administration is viewing the world and engaging with it, something we've been waiting for for a number of months after it was initially delayed from its originally February, March timeline. Then just last week, we received the National Defense Strategy, a related document specifically focusing on military and strategic in the kind of you know traditional 
guns, ships, tanks context. And then part of that, we have the nuclear postural review, which specifically focuses on all these questions as they relate to our nuclear capabilities. You're somebody who's been looking at these for a long time from different perspectives, from inside the executive branch, from Capitol Hill, from now at a, you know, a major US think tank. How should we as observers be thinking about these documents? What is the role and function they play? And what insights do they give us into how the administration is approaching these issues, both generally and then specific the Biden administration, if there's anything unique or different about how they're going about it this time? The national security strategy, we could start there, should generally be taken differently than it often is. So because of the word strategy in the NSS, for example, people who are reading it often say, well, I'm looking for the strategy. I want to see the strategy. Or the criticism is, well, that's not a strategy. And what they tend to mean by strategy, either which the strategy they're looking for or that they say isn't there, is a definition of objectives, uh, the steps necessary to attain those objectives, and the resources necessary to carry out those steps. That's kind of you know traditional strategy. That's not what the national security strategy is. Really, the NSS is like a very long foreign policy speech and national security speech. It's a snapshot of how a particular administration understands its global security and economic environment, how it defines American interests and values, how it defines its broad foreign policy priorities, and, and really how it's thinking about where to put its policy efforts. Uh, so in that sense, its chief value is a signaling device, a signaling device to multiple audiences inside the executive branch, to the military, to foreign governments, the American people, and things like that. But of course, having multiple audiences means that it can't be everything to everyone. And you have some tensions uh, between the audiences that you're trying to address in the formulation of these things. What do we know specifically about how the Biden administration is conceiving and gone about this? Because it's been a notable process this year. We were expecting these things in February. And on top of that, they're actually the the latest iteration of a strategy or a statement that we got an interim version of shortly after the Biden administration entered office in 20, 2021. They were ready to come out about a year later. And then they said very openly, look, the war on uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is about to happen. And they were correct. It did happen around the time we're going we're gonna to release this. We're going to hold it and reevaluate and look at it a little bit. Why do that in this with this sort of document? What does that tell us? And what do we think might have changed during that kind of multi-month uh, kind of interregnum between when they were originally going to release this and this final version that we now have? There were really two reasons to hold it once the war in Ukraine broke out. The first was because that changed the diagnosis of the international situation. So uh, you could not any longer really talk about Russia as a potential threat or a past threat or a minor threat, but rather an acute threat. I mean, it's waging land, land warfare in Europe, a war of aggression. And that did change the way the national security strategy articulates priorities and and what is necessary. And there's a certain kind of temporal element of this. They often refer both in the NSS and the NDS as the Russia being the acute threat and China being the long-term enduring challenge. Um, so that's one was just the world changed. And I think they wanted to be able to capture that change uh, in the national security strategy. The other though, is just how dense the information environment was. I mean, at the 
height of the early part of the war, the administration released its Indo-Pacific strategy, yet another strategy. And one of the points in doing so was to demonstrate that you know, Indo-Pacific strategy wasn't a prisoner to events of the day in Europe, but rather we can, as people in the administration love to say, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But it kind of got lost, at least, you know, uh, outside key governments in the Indo-Pacific, because so much of the policy debate and focus was on the war in Europe. So I think they both for uh, letting it have some space to be able to be absorbed and discussed and also to account for changes in the world, they held it until just recently. So you've already kind of laid out for us the big framing of really all three of these documents, most expressed in the national security strategy, although pretty pretty expressed in the NDS as well, which is the game that the United States is involved in this competition with Russia and China, each of which is framed in a kind of different way as a competitor. Russia as an acute threat, um, that is a phrase used kind of throughout these documents, and China usually as an enduring or persistent threat or challenge or competitor, something in, in that range. And this is done in the context of a pretty stark opening statement in the national security strategy, which is that the post-Cold War era is over. The kind of defining experience of the last 30 years of really the kind of coming of age of the current generation of foreign policy people for the most part and national security professionals is over and we're in a new era now. What is this new era that they're describing and how does this framing of China and Russia help us understand the strategic logic, the strategic terrain the Biden administration sees the United States is acting on? The new era is one in which the United States faces two great power challengers who are, in the Russian case, actively aggressive, and in the China case, represent uh, an underlying potential threat long run. These two great power competitors simultaneously and indefinitely. And it's worth remembering, at least for the current administration, this wasn't the plan. When they first came into office, they said they sought a uh, stable, quote, stable and predictable relationship with Russia. The idea was to not have to be tied down in Europe, not have to deal with the kind of thing they're dealing with now in order uh, to free up the time, attention, resources to focus more fully on the Indo-Pacific and on China. They also, of course, tried to get Iran back into the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, tried to get in a negotiation with North Korea to sort of stabilize that situation, pull out of Afghanistan so it wasn't tying up resources there. So these things don't quite <laughs> conform to the expectations all the time of an incoming administration. But this new era is one that we have backed ourselves into, where you have to deal with Russia and China as major revisionist disruptors simultaneously and indefinitely. And how you do that, how you balance a portfolio of risk and engagement across the full spectrum of American national security challenges is really the the issue of the day. I mean, I guess it's always the issue of the day, but sometimes how you do it's clearer than at other times. And now there are a lot of choices to be made in terms of trade-offs and emphasis and things like that. And I think what the NSS tried to do is say, China's the big thing and Russia's the acute thing. But of course, there's some questions underneath that, including, for example, how long is acute? When do we get to the long run? Things like that. So at the event that you all at the Center for New American Security kind of laid out, uh, or hosted, excuse me, in which National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan laid out and presented the National Security Strategy a few weeks ago. In the subsequent conversation um, you all hosted with him, he really laid out this mission for this particular statement as he framed it, which was 
trying to balance this new highly competitive environment in which you see two major competitors, you know, near peer competitors in various regards, some some more than others, but but I think a fair way to characterize them. And then that overlaying with this really dense network of transnational challenges where there is a need for international cooperation and coordination, arguably much less zero-sum game sort of challenges than perhaps in a much more competitive environment. And of those, he noted COVID-19 being one of the biggest recent examples, but also climate action, I suspect terrorism and international organized crime and other things would probably fit in that same bucket um, that have made appearances on these strategies in the past. And he really described this process, which he's described as kind of like laying on a psychologist's couch and laying out his wrestling with this about how to reconcile those two levels, those two fields, uh, and how they intersect. How well do you think this strategy does that? Is Does this really end up being kind of a laundry list from two different uh, strategic views of the world that doesn't really try and wrestle with the difficult trade-offs? Or, or, or do you really see that endeavor in these pages about saying, here's how we are balancing the inevitable trade-offs between these two different levels of competition and strategic thinking. I think it's reasonable to say that countries in which, with which we have very vigorous competitions or worse, China and Russia, for example, can still be collaborators in areas where we share interests. I mean, there's some inner logic, you know, COVID 19 is a threat to all of us. And there's no reason why, given all of our disagreements and activities on other issues, we couldn't cooperate to put an end to it. You know, climate change threatens all of us, proliferation threatens all of us, you know, and so on. But I think that runs up against the practical reality, uh, which is that the competition is going to trump the cooperation almost every time. It's, it's theoretically possible that we can compete with China on Taiwan and military affairs and economic influence and diplomacy and international organizations and information operations and all those things. But we can also cooperate on climate nonproliferation and pandemics and everything else. But there's no evidence to show that we can actually do that or that we do actually do that. So, you know, again, COVID-19 was uh, a threat to both China and the United States. Neither of us had any interest in this thing spreading further than it was. Uh, it was a dire threat to our economies, our people's health, all of that. And yet you've seen zero cooperation between the United States and China on COVID-19. And in fact, it's just been one more vector for competition. So I think the reality is that the spirit of competition is likely to infect the spirit of cooperation uh, in most cases. And for all of the U.S. desire to segment issues and say, well, we'll cooperate on one three and five, but we'll compete on two and four and six. These other countries are not going to see it that way. And they also see the desire for cooperation as a source of leverage in the competition. So I'm pretty pessimistic, despite all the kind of interior logic uh, that we will see a whole lot of major cooperation between the United States, Russia and China on big transnational issues. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but I'm just pessimistic that it'll actually happen in a dramatic fashion. So let's start with the big pillars of this new strategic picture that we're wrestling with, Russia and China. Tell us, what are the big thrusts in your mind, the big important statements this is making about the way the United States will or intends to approach these threats? Let's start with Russia. 
and how much does that make sense? How much is this actually reconciling with the actual challenges that the United States is going to face? Uh, in Russia, at least, we've seen a lot of U.S. policy be implemented since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February. We have a good sense of the trajectory there. But where does this strategy see that leading and how realistic is that? The strategy seems to see it leading with something that could be characterized as a Russian defeat in Ukraine and a success by the Ukrainians, the diminishment of Russian power over the medium term so that Russia's military is less capable of making war in the future than it was on February 24th, that its economy is less integrated and of less weight than it was before the war, and that the country is more isolated and has uh, less ability to either impose its will or attract other countries to join with it in a revisionist kind of foreign policy. And if those things can be achieved, then I think that's the aim overall of the Russia policy. And Russia is doing most of that work uh, for us on its own because it is quickly becoming less military capable, poor, more isolated, and less capable of imposing its will. Uh, now that said, Russia still has plenty of capability left, so it's not as if it's going to become a minor power no matter what happens in Ukraine. And that's an enduring challenge. And I think the strategy tries to wrestle with that, but by saying it's an acute threat, and this is true both to the NSS and the national defense strategy, I think they're trying to make the argument that all of these billions of dollars that we're pouring into Ukraine and all of this energy that is going into the punish and isolate Russia uh, efforts really are going to be a time-bound kind of phenomenon. This is not the new normal forever because we do have to deal with China, but now is the time to make those efforts. Of course, like I was saying before, when do we get the long run? And no one has an answer to that. Well, that sort of temporal distinction is such a big one. It really hangs over, I think, both of the NDS and the NSS. Um, and to some extent, I guess the Nuclear Posture Review as well, because it this constant framing of China as this enduring or persistent challenger source of competition is in such sharp contrast to that Russian approach. So what does that vision look like strategically? How is the strategy for dealing with China so dramatically different with Russia, both, I guess, in time frame, but also in what the goal the United States is trying to achieve in the Biden administration's mind when you're dealing with a major major competitor you expect to be on the scene for the foreseeable future? The picture of what the objective of U.S.-China policy is, both in these documents and I think in administration statements, broadly speaking, is a lot less clear than on Russia or certainly with respect to other foreign policy issues. The U.S. has been pretty clear about what it doesn't want and doesn't want China to invade Taiwan. It doesn't want China to cut off freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. It doesn't want China to set international technology standards. You can go on and on and on, you know, abridge human rights at home. But what it actually wants is a lot harder and it's been pretty abstract. You can you have to kind of squint pretty hard to see it, but there's some lines in the national security strategy that talk about coexistence with China. And I think that ultimately is where the administration is headed, where they see a form of coexistence with China, a China ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, but that nevertheless is protective of American interests and values. And yet that has not been spelled out, like I said, in these documents, really with any degree of specificity. And so I think there's still a lot of questions outside of government of 
what the overall objective of U.S.-China policy is. Is it to weaken China as and and make it poorer than it would otherwise be through a decoupling, strategic decoupling of our economies and export controls and all these things? Is it to only see particular capabilities not fielded against the United States? Is it uh, to have a Reagan-esque kind of approach to dealing with the Chinese Communist Party, holding out hope that that party won't be in power forever? Is it, you know, is there some sort of accommodation that we would one day get to if we are uh, in a strengthened position and negotiate? None of those things seem like they're on table on the table, but I think there's still a lot of questions outside of government. In his remarks around the national security strategies kind of roll out, uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan kind of made, I thought, a really interesting critique that that seems to get at a similar set of issues, particularly in relation to China, although I think he was talking about China and Russia at the time. And that's making the point that during the Cold War, the United States made what he pretty clearly seemed to think was a mistake in really trying to draw sharp lines, lines of alliance saying to third countries, you are with us or against us, you're on this side of the Cold War line or the opposite. And he suggested that, in fact, in this sort of competitive environment, again, I think this is primarily in relation to China, you need to have much more of an engagement on the terms with those third party countries, finding ways to give them what they need, a beneficial relationship and show the value of a relationship with the United States, kind of a, a I guess, more of a seduction or, or a bringing in of an extension of mutual interest as opposed to, you know, some sort of compulsory force decision, pick a side one side or the other. Do you see signs of that in this strategy? How how does that actually work out in practice uh, in terms of framing this competitive environment? And and in what tools it, does the Biden administration seem to be laying out in these sorts of documents to facilitate that? Well, I mean, I certainly in the abstract, yes, of course, it's true that no country wants to be forced to choose between the United States and China. Every country wants some mix of security and economic benefits from both the United States and China. And if you try to force an overall kind of strategic choice on countries, then there's certainly the possibility they'll choose against the way you wish them to choose. And so you want to engage with these countries on their own terms and for their own sake and everything else. But it's also true that to the degree to which this is a function of the U.S.-China competition, not all regions and not all countries are equally important in that competition and not all issues are equally important in that competition. So if the Chinese, for example, want to establish a naval base in Papua New Guinea or the South Pacific, that would be of pretty significant concern to the United States because of the way it could have the effect of pushing uh, the U.S. Navy back. If the Chinese want Huawei to build out the 5G network in Papua New Guinea or an island in the South Pacific, that doesn't seem to me to rise to the same level of concern. And uh, so, you know, overall, there's a, a sort of secondary point, I think, in what the National Security Advisor was trying to say, or perhaps what he should have said, which is that if we treat every country on its own terms as equally important in this grand China competition. We try to spread all of our attention and resources across everywhere in the world that China and Russia are active. We will fail. I mean, China and Russia are global powers and they are active in multiple regions of the world simultaneously on many different issues. 
saying that, you know, there's a temporal dimension to the Russia-China competition, all these other things is great, but it does not relieve us of the trade-offs that we have to make when we're allocating our national security resources against the places and issues that we think matter most in the competition we're most focused on. And that has pointed us in the direction of Southeast Asia, for example, more than Central Asia and the South Pacific more than some other areas and things like that. We've seen the big pillars of competition around Russia and China. That is the focus of all these documents, uh, particularly the NDS and NSS. But a couple of other big threats or big concerns do pop up throughout. Two you've already mentioned, so I think it's worth at least discussing them briefly, which is Iran and North Korea, neither of which really rises to the level of a major concern, at least not more so than a list of pretty similarly situated issues from you know, climate change being one of the more transnational ones uh, and and some of these other broader challenges, but nonetheless kind of pop out as particularly country-specific and enduring challenges, and that, of course, have a nuclear element. How well do you think the administration really wrestles with the challenges of those scenarios? Is there, you know, a proper ranking of them in priority of concern among these other challenges? Or because they're both at least in the North Korea case, a little bit intractable, uh, and in the Iran case, kind of an ongoing challenge that's being worked on in a lot of ways kind of behind closed doors. Are they kind of deliberately being downplayed in these documents simply because the messaging component of these sorts of statements isn't as useful in these cases? Yeah, I think they're generally in the right tier of priorities, which is to say behind big existential challenges like climate change and also behind great power competition with China and Russia. I I think downplaying uh, North Korea, not abandoning the issue, but downplaying it is the right call because I think you described it at North Korea as a little bit intractable, Um, but it's completely intractable. It's not a solvable problem if we define the solution as the denuclearization of North Korea. We won't abandon that as a public ambition but many administrations now have come and gone and tried pretty much everything uh, or, or almost everything except the use of military force, which has its own very bad consequences to try to achieve the denuclearization. So you want to manage that situation, but you want to do so in a way that one, either is attempting to solve something that can't be solved or two, pulling together so much of your resources and devoting it to that set of issues that it there's an opportunity cost from dealing with bigger things like China and so forth. So I think that's generally right there. Iran's a little more complicated because, of course, it is a regional aggressor and has engaged at home and abroad in a whole variety of malign behaviors. I think the administration has focused a lot on the nuclear weapons uh, question in in Iran and making sure that Iran doesn't obtain a nuclear weapon, uh, which is right. But of course, even if it is not about to obtain a nuclear weapon, um, that doesn't relieve the administration of the burden of having to deal with Iran as a regional aggressor and spoiler and support for proxy organizations. And of course, it's uh, human rights uh, abuses at home and what we're seeing now on the streets of Tehran. So Iran, I think, is one of those issues where even if people in the administration wish that they could focus elsewhere, uh, it's going to be forced back onto the agenda as it really has been today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me 
now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And in my mind, at least kind of equally notable and, and interesting as to what does make appearance is particularly priority here are those items that don't make appearances, or at least much of an appearance. Because particularly for those of us who kind of came of age in national security in the post-9-11 era, there are some big ticket items that have been defining elements of U.S. national security for the last several decades that are really pretty absent from this, uh, these documents. Um, Afghanistan is mentioned in passing once or twice, almost exclusively in terms of withdrawal ending kind of the commitment there. One mention of over-the-horizon terrorist capability, but that's about it. Iraq is not mentioned at all in the NSS. It's mentioned once uh, in the National Defense Strategy. Um, really, counterterrorism gets pretty short shrift, uh, if I, at least from my reading. Uh, it gets like a page and a half or two-page national security strategy. That's, that's really about it. And a couple mentions in the NDS. And in a lot of ways, frankly, the Middle East region doesn't get a little bit of short shrift. Each region gets some time spent on it. But the level of specificity in regards to what exactly the administration has planned for the Middle East strikes me as a lot of orienting towards kind of disengagement or a lower level engagement. Maybe I'm misreading that, but that's at least kind of my, my sense of it. Is that a re- realistic approach to this set of issues in terms of actual policy versus maybe messaging? Uh, is this more of a messaging enterprise or does the Biden administration actually think, and maybe it's accurately or not, it can kind of walk away from these issues so readily that have been such a defining aspect of U.S. foreign policy and national security policy for the last 20, 30 years? I think they'd like to dial down the level of engagement. And of course, in that, they wouldn't be alone because every administration since George W. Bush has said that they're going to reduce America's overall exposure, so to speak, in the Middle East. But the Middle East has a way of uh, forcing itself onto the agenda. I mean, I don't think they're talking about disengagement or a withdrawal. I mean, I think if you fast forward and to a couple of years, you'll still have the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain and you'll still have bases in UAE and Qatar and you'll still have a tight relationship with Israel and still have a problematic relationship with Saudi Arabia and, 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 and people will still in the region will still look to the United States for what its position is on a bunch of different areas. So some of this is relative. I mean, these documents, uh, like so many other government documents over the past now decade or so, are at pains to tell you all the things that the United States is not going to do in the Middle East. We're not going to invade countries and topple their governments and occupy them indefinitely with our own military. We're not going to engage in large-scale nation-building exercises. We're not going to try to transform the Middle East into a bastion of democracy. Okay, fine, but nobody's proposing that anyway. So the question really is, what does a steady state kind of engagement in the Middle East look like? You're pretty challenged to find the answer to that question in any of these documents. Um, And in fact, there's some contradictions, too, because, you know, they talk in the Middle East, for example, about and particularly in uh, the NDS about creating a, a collective kind of security uh, network there, as particularly in the light of the regional normalization with Israel and the Gulf countries and and things like that, that that have 
overlapping interests that can work together. Well, I mean, as recently as last week, the United States government said that it was reassessing the entirety of its relationship with Saudi Arabia because it didn't like the fact that the Saudis pushed for a, a higher oil price and lower production. Well, if you want a regional strategy that includes all the big countries there working together, it's going to include Saudi Arabia. So do you want a relationship with Saudi Arabia or not? And I don't think that you get many answers on the Middle East other than what we don't want to do from these documents. I will say one other thing, though, because, I mean, your point about the general downplaying of counterterrorism, of course, is not unique to these documents. It's to the broader national security, I guess, establishment in Washington. I mean, it was really striking to me as someone who did cut his teeth in the, you know, years after 9-11 and just how much terrorism has become uh, downplayed compared to how it was before, you know, and the same day that Ayman al-Zawari, you know, the al-Qaeda leader, the world's most wanted terrorist, deputy to bin Laden on 9-11 is found living in downtown Kabul in a house where he's being harbored by the interior minister of Afghanistan. That was the number two foreign policy story in the newspapers. It was number one was Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. And the Zawahiri story was more or less a one or a two day story. And the Pelosi one had, you know, discussions going on for a good week or so. And uh, I think it is indicative of how, again, downplayed uh, counterterrorism has been part of this or a major part of this, obviously, is the way the world has gone and the dismantling of key parts of Al Qaeda and ISIS and things like that. But uh, I worry that Afghanistan has not uh, just shifted off from something we never need to think about again, and that a Taliban run Afghanistan uh, at some point will return to a sanctuary for terrorists with global reach and CT is going to have to uh, remain a, a major issue for the United States. No, that's a fascinating anecdote. Uh, There's another issue that kind of comes up, I think, in the background of this document and presents some tensions in a variety of ways. I think National Security Advisor Sullivan acknowledges a bit in some of the opening remarks, but but maybe not to the full extent to which there is a tension here, um, which is the Biden administration really came in to the White House with this very express framing of the world as a struggle between democracies and autocracies. And there's elements of that throughout the national security strategy, but in a lot of other areas, they're talking very openly about a need to cooperate with a variety of states and engage and build relationships. I should say a number of states, including many that are not democracies or wouldn't fit in that bucket or might have human rights practices or other policies of concern to the United States that seem to run contrary to the kind of more moral vision and moralistic language that uh, certainly was the kind of campaign-oriented Biden, uh, Joe Biden framing of the world. Do we, we see elements of that here, but at the same time, there is this challenge of reconciling it with this environment of that requires both high degrees of competition uh, with other major strategic rivals and then lots of international, transnational cooperation around certain major challenges like food security, climate change, et cetera, before. How does it reconcile that vision? Is, a, is Are the remainders of that kind of more moral vision much more of a kind of messaging holdover? Do they play a strategic role in this picture? Or does democracy promotion, or at least democracy reinforcement, human rights, things like that actually fit into the strategic picture we see being laid out here? I think the first thing to say is just to observe that American human rights and democracy promotion policy has never been consistent. 
much to the consternation of uh, some of our foreign friends who say, well, you know, there's some countries you beat up on relentlessly for their human rights practices. And there are other countries that have very similar human rights practices that you don't beat up on at all. How is that possible? And of course, it's possible because the values that are embedded in those policies are not all that's at issue there. It's also interests and the size of the country and economics and everything else. So consistency has never been a particular strong suit of American human rights diplomacy. I mean, here the the documents and the administration have made, I think, a useful distinction between autocracies in general and revisionist autocracies, essentially autocracies that aren't democracies, dictatorships, ones that don't allow the people to choose their leaders and don't have liberal values at home. And the subset of those that have revisionist uh, ambitions internationally. So essentially their foreign policies are revisionist. So those are the countries like Russia and China and Iran and North Korea. They want something uh, different and that runs counter to our interests in terms of the way the international situation is. You could add, you know, a couple of other countries probably to that list, but there are countries that wouldn't necessarily be on that list. Vietnam, a lot of the allies in the Middle East uh, that are not democracies, but in fact want a continuation of, generally speaking, the international status quo and so forth. And I think that's a useful distinction. I mean, ultimately, if it's the coincidence of bad domestic practices at home and bad foreign behavior abroad, that's, of course, an that should mean we want to focus on resisting uh, what those countries are trying to accomplish. It doesn't, however, clean up the consistency problem you were talking about at the beginning. I mean, that doesn't say, okay, well, now this all kind of makes sense. We're going to put human rights at the center of our foreign policy. We're going to frame the world, broadly speaking, as a contest of autocracies versus democracies. But in that contest, we're going to work with autocracies and we are going to have some democracies that are not working with us. Explain. And there is no great explanation for that. One last issue area that I think it's worth touching on because it makes an odd uh, appearance here in ways that are kind of telling is trade and international economic engagement. You don't have to go that far back in the history of these documents and pulling up old ones from the Bush administration, from the Obama administration, even particularly from the Bush administration and Clinton administration, to see the idea of promoting free economic trade and exchange playing a much more central role, as well as kind of the idea of engaging with the United States being a source of economic advantage, playing a bigger strategic role as, as some of the pros that the United States brings to the broader strategic competition, whatever sort it was engaging in those periods. Here, it seems like a much more subsidiary role. Um, it's not discussed as much. It does make appearances here and there, but usually in discussing broader regional challenges. How much shrift are those kind of economic considerations playing in the strategic picture? And is it too much or too little? It's way too little. And I mean, the, this is, I think, probably the biggest drawback of the national security strategy is that there's no affirmative trade agenda whatsoever. And that damages America's ability to compete with China, particularly, but not exclusively in the Indo-Pacific. It does not demonstrate any economic leadership in any region of the world, and which might be tolerable if all those regions in the world were standing still themselves, but they're not. I mean, there are two pan-Asian trade agreements. There's RCEP and there's the CPTPP. The United States is party to neither. China's party to one and trying to join the other. 
Uh, we used to talk about TTIP, a transatlantic free trade agreement. Nothing, nada in there about anything like that. Uh, even in, I guess you could say niche issue areas, but you know, everyone's sort of looking in the goodie bag for how we can help uh, Taiwan in a way that uh, is cost uh, appropriate to the United States and so forth. Nothing on an economic agreement, a free trade agreement with Taiwan, nothing on digital trade. So we say that we want to, we don't want to see China write the rules uh, and standards for technology in the future. Well, one way of trying to get at that is to have a digital trade agreement region-wide or a series of bilateral ones in Asia that would have our rules, not the Chinese rules. Are we doing that? No, we're not doing that at all. And I think this is really just a function of skepticism among the president and economic policymakers in the administration about the utility uh, of trade in general and the increasing unpopularity of trade, certainly on the Democratic side, but increasingly on the Republican side as well. And so it's a, it's a major handicap. I mean, we're really trying to deal with all of these competitive environments that are described in these documents with one hand tied behind our back if we're not going to have an economic agenda to go after it with. We're getting close to the end of our time, but I, I want to dig into one kind of last concept here before we, we step back for a kind of overall assessment. And that's a kind of recurring term of art we see in this document, particularly the national security strategy, but also in the NDS. And that's this idea of integrated deterrence. It, it goes so far as to get its own special colored box and committee right. page in the NSS, <laughs> which is always a sign that this yeah. is an important thing we want to draw your attention yeah. to. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what the Biden administration is trying to tell us by isolating this concept of integrated deterrence, which plays such a central role in how it's framing its strategy. And particularly tell us about how it intersects with another major issue in the NDS that seems so closely related, which is the nuclear question, because the nuclear technology fits into this integrated deterrence picture in a, in a, in a significant way, among other tools. And that itself seems to be a little bit of a, maybe not a departure, but a particular trajectory in how to approach US nuclear capabilities that is at least a bit of a departure from how the Obama administration approached it. Um, so tell us a little bit about, about how those fit together and what this toolkit of integrated deterrence is the Biden administration is, is putting forward. Well, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, came into office and started talking about integrated deterrence, which uh, wasn't initially clear on what precisely that was, but it, the word wasn't just deterrence, so it had to be something kind of above deterrence. It was integrated deterrence as opposed, I guess, to disintegrated deterrence. And then over the months, the department and the administration, generally speaking, has given kind of greater meaning to what that phrase means. Uh, at the beginning, they were saying, well, it means that the Department of Defense doesn't do everything. I mean, you have it, it integrates the military tool with diplomacy and economic statecraft and information and all of the other things. But then it just sounded like whole of government, which, of course, there was already a term of art for that, which is, mean, you know, you get everybody together and sort of all work on the same objective from your various competing strengths, whether it's trade or foreign assistance or diplomacy or defense or whatever. And they said, well, actually, it includes, but it's not limited to whole of government. It's in integration across government agencies and efforts, but it's other integration too. So it's integration across domains so that if we are trying to deter a war against a country, we would deter it by capabilities in multiple domains, the cyber domain, the space domain, the undersea domain, the land domain, the surface sea domain, all of this, the air domain. Okay, well, 
Yeah. And then they said, well, it's also integration across regions. And to me, that was really interesting because what it suggests is horizontal escalation, horizontal escalation, you know, China does something in Asia that we wish to resist. So we do something to China in, I don't know, Africa or Latin America, as opposed to in the place where they did it. I mean, that's horizontal escalation across regions. They don't actually seem to mean that. So uh, I, I, I suppose there's a notion of putting everything together, but you know, I don't know that this is a skeleton's key that unlocks a whole lot of conceptual understandings that, you know, otherwise <laughs> wouldn't obtain. And, w- and what about that nuclear element? Because I do think that's something that's made a little bit of a splasher. The Trump administration, its national security strategy was a little bit more express in saying, look, we see, we believe in cross-domain deterrence. I think it's a, a similar idea to integrated yeah. deterrence. And nuclear fits into that. And they left the door open saying, at least conceptually saying, in theory, look, if we get a threat of a certain type of a cyber sort, a nuclear response may be appropriate. We're not categorically taking it off the table. And similarly, they weren't willing to take first use off the table, one of these policy ideas that's constantly been debated. And it seems to me the Biden administration is more or less following that trajectory, um, rebrand a little bit, de-emphasizing the nuclear, emphasizing the need to contain risk and contain the risk of escalation in the nuclear domain. Uh, and emphasizing the availability of other tools. But nonetheless, that's how that nuclear element seems to be fitting into that picture. Am I wrong on that? And is that a good development or a bad development in terms of continuity across administrations? No, I think you're right. And I think it's a good development. The the most interesting change was where the president talked about nuclear weapons on the campaign trail. And I think the initial position that some members of the administration had and then where they ended up in the nuclear posture review. So during the campaign, the president, the then candidate Joe Biden wrote an article for foreign affairs in which he said that uh, he would reduce the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. national security policy and that would reserve nuclear weapons. The quote, the sole purpose of nuclear weapons would be to deter a nuclear attack meaning that the purpose of nuclear weapons was not to deter other kinds of attack, conventional attacks or catastrophic cyber attacks or, or, or pick some other kind of attack. That would have been a narrowing of the declaratory policy around the use of nuclear weapons compared to uh, where it had been when the administration took office. Through months of discussions, including with a number of American allies telling the administration that they were going to be quite upset if the administration went down that path and narrowed the circumstances under which they were prepared to use nuclear deterrence to nuclear attacks only. The administration basically did a 180. And so it is the baseline is essentially back where it used to be. And so if you look at the nuclear posture review now, it talks about sort of in a abstract uh, kind of way, desiring to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in the making of U.S. foreign policy, but are, are the, the role that they play in the making of U.S. foreign policy and national security policy. But given where we are, that's not really a thing today. And then they took the sole purpose thing out and uh, changed it to fundamental purpose. So it's fundamental purposes of nuclear weapons is to deter nuclear attacks. But of course, that's not their only purpose. So you're more or less right back where you started. And so what that has meant is that, you know, reality, I think, intruded on the ambitions of the administration to change the baselines in the nuclear posture review. 
Well, and that's a great framing for, for my last question that I want to ask you, which is that as, as somebody who's been looking at these things for a number of time and, and has that sense of perspective, what are the elements of continuity and departure we see between this and prior similar documents uh, and the thinking behind them? Do we get a sense from the NSS and NDS uh, and NPR in this case about major shifts, big changes in how the United States is approaching the security and kind of global affairs more generally that we can expect to see continuity of if there's a DeSantis administration in 2025, the next time we get one of these or uh, another administration that has a different policy values, but nonetheless is shaped by the same US strategic environment. And are there a by contrast, also points where elements of this big elements of the strategy are going to fall out if we see that. How much of this is reflects the re- strategic reality of the United States that any administration is going to have to deal with, and how much of it is a Biden administration policy preference that may come and go with the administration itself? Yeah, I guess the first thing I would say is just to return to something I said at the very beginning that this especially the national security strategy is not a strategy per se, though people often expect it to be. I mean, when I started working on the National Security Council staff many moons ago, the very first day the executive secretary handed me a copy of the existing, the Bush administration national security strategy kind of solemnly and handed over as if this was kind of, you know, the keys to the kingdom and the Ur document um, by which all could be measured and things like that. And I found it collecting dust unread in the corner of my office when I left the (laughs) National Security Council staff the last day, which is not to say that there's no value. There's value in the planning, uh, the whole Eisenhower, you know, plans are nothing, planning is everything stuff. And as signaling devices within government to set priorities, certainly outside of government, but particularly other governments and observers outside the United States will often do sort of a scriptural exegesis of this and look, you know, how many times was our country mentioned versus that of our rival you know, what order did we appear here and there? You know, what, what, what is the sort of hidden meaning behind uh, this particular phraseology and things like that? It's very possible to read way too much into these things. Um, these, after all, are not uh, laid down. They're not divinely inspired. I mean, they're, they're written by smart people, but, but, you know, it's a process. And so you have to kind of see it for what it is. And it's a snapshot. And so, you know, the NDS is, is a little bit more a little bit different because the military will do a lot of its uh, planning priorities based on things that are included in the national defense strategy. And, and certainly the budget follows the NDS or should follow the NDS much more than the national security strategy, which is often not linked to budgets at all. And the nuclear posture review is sort of, you know, gone over and over and over very closely, especially for the declaratory policy and looking for gaps between what was said before and what was said now. So they have these kind of different, I guess, sort of status in that regard. But overall, it's a snapshot. Again, it's, you know, the the national security strategy is like a really long foreign policy speech. And it tells you the way the administration seeing the world at the time that they are released and what it wishes to do about it. And so if you go back, for example, to Barack Obama's 2010 nuclear posture review, there's all kinds of stuff in there about keeping nuclear weapons out of the hands of terrorists, our previous points. And you don't see much of that this time around because people just don't think that the possibility of that is all that high. What they're worried about instead is the use of nuclear weapons by a country like Russia in a place like Ukraine. And so the way the world is, it tells you more than anything else 
what is going to be in these documents. Of course, there are policy preferences. If you go back to the Trump administration's policy preferences as compared to Biden or or Biden, you, you know, you'll see a heavy emphasis, a heavier emphasis on trade uh, about you know stopping countries from taking advantage of us, all of these other things. But overall, the disposition, for example, on China and Russia, and about strategic competition with two great powers in the Biden documents is a lot closer to Trump than it is to Obama and probably ultimately closer to Obama than it is to Bush. And so if you get another administration that comes in, even ones as different as Biden and Trump or whoever may come next, uh, there is a lot more continuity than one might expect from the personal political and even sometimes policy preferences. The world just has a way of shaping what's possible. And that in turn shapes what's on the page when administrations are setting out their plan ahead. Well, on that very useful thought, I think we'll have to leave the conversation there. Richard Fontaine, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks for having me. Lots of fun. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.